Hi, I'm Shereen Patek, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast. Every week, I talk to those making change happen in the world of retail. One of the best trends for my summer was a return to me of the aperitif. A lot of my friends make fun of me when I keep saying that. But I think and I'm pretty sure that I only had Helena Price-Hambrecht to thank. Helena is the co-founder of House, this amazing DTC aperitif brand that has literally been everywhere this summer. And I'm going to find out how she made that happen because... No matter what happened, all I could see everywhere was house. Hi, Elena. Hi. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you. Okay, let's start with the big picture. Tell us all about house. Oh, gosh. Where do I start? Start at the beginning. Okay. So, uh, where does the beginning happen? The beginning really started on (laughs) OKCupid.com. It's a love story. In 2012. This is the modern love podcast. where, (laughs) Where I met who would eventually become my husband and co-founder, Woody. Yes. So uh, we were 96% match. Um, I can go into all the details. But long story short, we joke that House wouldn't exist if a techie hadn't married a wine and spirits guy. Right. You're the techie. Mm-hmm. He's the wine and spirits guy. But at some point, you did, You, I think we were just talking about this before we started recording, but you, were, you know this is a match made in heaven for your love life, but also your business life. At what point did the even the concept of House begin? Well, House came from a few different tangents that kind of convened into this light bulb moment, right? So when I married Woody, I was running production studio. I was traveling around the world uh, making visual content for most of the tech companies you know. Like Facebook was sending me around the world, Shopify, like Uber, Airbnb, like, you know, all those companies I was working for. But when I was home, I would immerse myself in Woody's world. And Woody is a third-generation grape farmer, I literally married a hot farmer, (laughs) not on Farmers Only. Um, And he makes low-intervention wine, and he was already making aperitifs Mm -hmm. because he used to live in Berlin, and that's where he discovered aperitif culture and found that it was totally missing from the United States. And I watched him do everything right from a traditional industry standpoint. Like Mm -hmm. He got the Cool Kid distributor, and he got in all the Cool Kid bars and restaurants, and he was in the best cocktail lists in America, but how his product would be used is it would just be the smaller component of this high proof boozy cocktail. So it wasn't being poured the way that he wanted his aperitifs to be poured. We were barely moving any product and then the customer had no idea who we were because we were just this tiny component of this 12 ingredient high booze cocktail. So me as an outsider was like, this is a very bad way to build a consumer (laughs) brand. Like no one knows who we are, even though we're really cool with bartenders and cool with industry people, like we're just capped at this. And the more I got to know the industry through Woody, the more that I learned that it's a three-tier system. It hasn't really changed in a hundred years. And the people who ultimately control what you drink are the bigger corporations like a Campari or a Pernod or a AB and Bev. Yeah. And there aren't um, many of them. It's sort of, it's scary to think about how, how much those are all related to one of three to four companies mm-hmm. really. Yeah. So they ultimately have the deeper pockets. They're in cahoots with distributors and retailers. And it's just they've all been one happy family for 100 years. And Mm -hmm. they ultimately decide what we drink. So at the same time, I was going through my own drinking dilemma where part of being a business owner or just a career oriented person or a person in society is drinking like I was doing business meetings and industry events and conferences and um, also having friends and Drinking was something that was in my world almost every night. And while there's something very beautiful about 
um, food and beverage bringing people together. Like it's a ritual that's been around for thousands of years. There were these downsides that didn't feel so necessary. Like it was never my goal to be drunk during these things. And it was never my goal to be hungover. And But those things happened. And this poisonous, boozy stuff was making me feel terrible and making me more inebriated than I wanted to be. And I already knew that there were aperitifs in the world, these lower ABV spirits that my husband was already making. And it was just annoying to me that uh, most of my options were still making me feel terrible. So let's 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 pause for a minute because I do want to talk about sort of the competitive landscape when you started thinking about this. Because to your point earlier, okay, so there's there are aperitifs in the world again in the U.S. Sort of not really kind of well known, not really part of drinking culture. But at the same time, you had this. What you were experiencing is also you also came in right at the right time, right? Everyone's talking about this. Everyone, I think the the generation that sort of we're talking about here and those younger are thinking very differently about their alcohol. They're not thinking about it the way maybe people thought about it 30, 40 years ago. A hundred percent. Right. So, so what was, so who was you're going to, so what you're looking at and saying, wait, nobody's doing this. We should do it. But nobody else, why was nobody else doing it? Well, I hadn't gotten to the, we should do this point yet. Right. I knew that I had a problem. I knew that everyone else I knew had a problem where we were like, God, are we supposed to do this forever and not die? Like <laughs> we're supposed to drink. Drinking's part of life, but we all feel terrible. And why isn't there a better way to drink? So I started doing some research because I don't know how to chill. And I just wanted to see what does our generation want from drinking? I already knew that challenger brands were disrupting other industries because millennial consumers are quite different than the previous generation. And like, what is that for alcohol? And it didn't take long at all to see like, wow, millennials all are looking for something very different. They're motivated by their health and their image. Getting drunk is not cool. People aren't drinking to get drunk. They're drinking to connect and to do business and to be a participant in the world. And they're looking for low or no ABV options. And when you look at what alcohol was doing to satisfy that, it wasn't much, right? The strongest indicator uh, was actually the Aperol Spritz. It's the fastest growing drink in America. And when you look into why that's happening, obviously Campari had a huge marketing budget. But beyond that, there was a demand for something that was lighter and more sessionable. Mm-hmm. And Aperol came and they owned that space. And even though it's like bright orange and full of food coloring and more sugar <laughs> than you could ever imagine, everyone drank it because they felt it was better for them. Right. right? It wasn't going to give you that debilitating feeling of right. anxiety the next morning. Right. Even though it actually does. <laughs> but Long story short, it was like, wow, there's this massive market and no one is building something for it. And so the reason no one has really innovated in the space, um, think about it like Luxottica pre-Warby Parker or taxis pre-Uber, like industries that were disrupted, um, kind of the prime setting for disruption is that the legacy industry has no incentive to innovate because they control the system and any sort of innovation would actually disrupt their existing portfolio. So they have no, they just can't create anything new that Mm -hmm. serves a new generation. And there's something very similar here, right? Like why would alcohol go really hard on low and no ABV when that would take market share from high ABV or, Mm -hmm. or threaten high ABV? And their existing businesses. And they're they just are like, things are fine the way that they are. You should just keep drinking this stuff. That's a, that's a really interesting point. And I do I do want to talk about that. But first, you know, my thing with that has always been, I mean, there's two ways that big brands can innovate, right? One is 
They just keep selling the thing that they're making that's doing really well, great margins. They're, and maybe they'll change a little bit of the product itself to appeal to, okay, a customer that maybe wants less sugar. Okay, let's do a low sugar alternative. It won't really be no sugar. It'll be low sugar, a little bit less sugar. And that's just one example. You change your existing portfolio ever so slightly. You're also seeing kind of big holding company brands say, okay, our only way to innovate is to acquire Mm -hmm. small innovative brands that are doing kind of what we're doing, but they'll be separate from us. Mm -hmm. And you, I know you haven't gotten yet to the point where you're like, okay, I'm going to launch this company, but I am curious when you got there, why you said, I'm going to, we're going to launch this company. Woody and I are going to do this ourselves and not say we're going to start a company and then just kind of pitch this to a big company that controls distribution, Mm -hmm. has tons of marketing money, all the good stuff. Yeah. Well... I mean, when I was doing that research, I was like, wow, what an amazing opportunity for a disruptor brand. But the problem is you can't go around the system. Like the reason there's never been a direct-to-consumer liquor brand is because it's literally illegal. Right. You have to go through the system. And when you go through the system, the max that you can achieve is what Woody achieved, which is being really cool with industry people. But ultimately, you're going to be a sprinkle in a high-proof cocktail because things are the way that they are. And it's very difficult to ever reach the end drinker who may want what you want um, because you have to go through the system. And so really, when I got to this point, I was more just like bummed where it was like, wow, what an incredible opportunity that no one can take advantage of. And so I was kind of lamenting this to Woody, like, man, wouldn't it be nice if someone could make a brand for our generation and go around the system and go direct to consumer and just eat their lunch. (laughs) And that was the moment Woody had a light bulb moment and was like, oh, actually, uh, there's a loophole that I've never thought about until this moment where if you are primarily made of grapes and under 24% alcohol, you can be classed federally as a wine, even though you're drank like a spirit, marketed as a spirit. And you're like, ding, 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 ding. And that was like, oh, my God. (laughs) That was that funny moment of like, yeah, this loophole isn't like it's not a thing that no one knows about. It's Mm. a thing that you would know about if you work in aperitifs. It just took a techie who's used to every industry being disrupted by direct-to-consumer brand being like, oh, this should be used to launch a disruptive direct-to-consumer brand. And that was when we were like, we got to build this company. So where do, where do you begin? We've had so many founders on on the show, and I always love that first sort of, you know, for some of them it's for six months, for some of them it's the first year, for some it's the first week, where they went from saying this is the ding, ding, ding moment with their co-founders usually to going, wait, we've started a company. Oh, my God. How did that go? It was immediate. I mean, we had the idea. The next day, I had the idea for the name. Woody went and pursued the trademark. It was available, which is insane. Um, And we just immediately got to work on compliance. It was kind of one of those things where it was like, yeah, I mean, Woody is the perfect person to make this product and build out the production infrastructure. We already have most of it in place because we already make aperitifs. And I can just get to work on building the brand. I know what I want it to be. Let's do it. And we just started. And that's, we had the idea summer of 2018 and we launched summer of 2019. It only took us a year. It felt though, and I and I know you did launch in the summer of 2019, but it felt like it sort of came, and I don't want to say out of nowhere because it wasn't that. I think it was like, okay, working on something, like Elena's doing something. It kind of came out of nowhere. But then it was, it, I, I don't know what it was. Was it like a two week span or something maybe? And this is, you know, testament to, I think clearly your PR and earned media strategy, which I want to talk more about. To just saying, oh, my God, this thing is everywhere. Every single person I know on Twitter, it's probably because I follow a lot of DTC people on Twitter, um, 
is tweeting about this, but also it's in every magazine. It's in every wellness, from every wellness blog to lifestyle publication. How important and sort of crucial almost was that? Because, and especially in the industry you were in, look, earned media PR, crucial for everybody, I think, to some extent. But it almost felt like this was it for you guys. Yeah. I mean, so here's my approach. Like my first career was in launch PR. Like I did launch PR for startups. I know, (laughs) I know know the system, right? Like I know how to do it, but that also bleeds into other things, right? It bleeds into the strategy behind how we position the brand. It bleeds into everything, every touch point. And so our challenge was how do we take this category of alcohol that most people have never heard of. Most people don't even realize they're looking for a solution, even if though you may talk to them about it and they'll be like, oh my God, yeah, I'm looking for a solution. Just nobody's really been looking for it. So if, if we were to just launch with, this is an aperitif, most people would be like, I don't know what that is and I don't care. Like, and I, I don't think I need it and I don't Yeah. So for me, I mean, when you go back into the the statistics around what drove the most traffic. Um, you know, we got plenty of press. Press is fantastic. Um, I, I have a particular viewpoint around what value press actually brings, which I can go into later. Um, but the biggest driver was a Medium post that I wrote. And part of my gut that writing a Medium post would be important is that at that point, I'd already pitched hundreds of people on this product. And I knew what stories mattered to people and what didn't. And Ultimately, it's a problem that people can relate to or not, right? Like when I was pitching this company in the beginning, um, the thing that really resonated with people is telling that story of being a business person and being out drinking constantly and how terrible all of us feel and how it's like hurting our joints and affecting our sleep and all these extra calories that we have to work off. And there were all of these downsides that were just weighing us down. And the people, not everyone got it. I mean, there were plenty of people who were like, I like beer. It's working for me. And I'm like, cool. We're not for you. Or people who are already really, really nerdy in the aperitif world. And they're like, I'm good. I already know about aperitifs. So there are people that don't get the story, but there are a lot of people who feel that pain point mm-hmm. and it really struck a chord when the story was told because it's not something that everybody was talking about. You had a really good story and because you've just told it and I know it's really good. Did you did you have to sort of work on crafting it to make it sort of a founder's story or a co-founder story? Or was it just, you know what, this is just me and I'm just going to say what it is? It's just what I do. When I kind of joke, I don't know if you've ever seen um, the like one serious Will Ferrell movie, Stranger Than Fiction, <laughs> where there's a narrator that, that follows his every move. That's my life. Um, I think it's just like the way that I've thought about everything since I was 20 and blogging on MySpace um, when I was touring with bands. Like I was just always looking for the story and anything that happens to me, I kind of process it as like, oh, okay, like how does this fit into the story? (laughs) And it's also a good coping mechanism because when terrible things happen, you're like, oh, this is good for the story. Um, But that, so it came much easier to me because I'm constantly thinking about it constantly like every decision we make as a company I go back to how does this fit into the story and how is this like what is that gonna do to our narrative six or 12 months from now we're gonna go back to the life and times of Helena (laughs) just after a quick message okay so you've got I think the storytelling thing that we were just talking about um, and I completely appreciate it because I think what actually has made a lot of these 
we don't even have to call them DTC brands, just young startup brands, powerful and interesting and frankly intriguing. And the reason I have them on the show in the first place is because they've got good stories. And that's why I asked, you know, do you have to work at kind of making that story even even slightly better, polishing the edges, making sure it really works with the brand? Because every single founder I've ever spoken to said, I said, what is the hardest thing about building your company? And he or she has always said, it's making sure I'm finding that story. It already exists somewhere in their lives, to your point. It's just finding it. And that, and it sounds trite and it sounds like marketing and it sounds like, oh, great storytelling. Yeah, I know. It's just performance marketing. You bought a ton of Instagram ads. But it sort of makes sense. Oh, my God. I, it's everything. I mean, luckily, we had the founder story that just happened, right? So that is like a big load of work off our plate. If we were two Wharton kids that came up with this in class, that'd be a bigger burden, right? How do you create that story that doesn't just involve class <laughs> at Wharton, right? So we had that going for us. But then um, from there, it's like, it's a constant challenge, right? It's like, okay, I was able to successfully convert a ton of people with a medium post that they could all relate to. But how do you take that and condense it into an Instagram ad? Right. Like how what are the one liners that create that similar moment of like, oh, my God, this brand was made for me. So what worked? I'm curious about the Instagram approach. We don't know yet. We just started experimenting with paid. All of our users so far have been organic. We just started ex experimenting with paid. One of the things you guys did do, though, and, you know, before the paid stuff was you made it pretty easy to buy things. I mean, it was it was easy. It, it, and I generally mean it, it was you, you pressed you didn't have to press too many buttons when I mean that as a compliment it seems simple but it's it is true and I remember you know I remember talking to Nick Sharma about this um and just saying like okay just make it really easy just press the thing how much do people sort of you know how much do people screw up on the kind of valuing the easy stuff that seems less interesting and then focus too much on the sort of like hard things that don't actually move the needle as much and where do you think sort of you went right and also what where do you think you could have done more of that you're going to do now? It's funny you say that because our website actually converts terribly. Um, so I'm surprised to hear that. Yeah, no, I mean, there are, it could be done in less clicks, believe it or not. So we are, you know, that's something, a very, very easy place for if we like doubled our conversion by, I mean, like it, it would be very advantageous to us to do so. And it's that's a very easy fix, right? So I think all things considered, I'm glad we put, our work into the more uh, kind of soft, nebulous things around positioning, around messaging, um, because increasing conversions on a website is the easy part, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's no one problem to solve, right? It's like you have to be working on everything in tandem. And I think part of knowing what those things are is, you know, having worked around small startups for 10 years and understanding it's not just PR. It's not just ads. It's not just messaging. It's not just the visual brand. Like I look, you know, on, on Twitter or, you know, in these kind of industry communities and everybody's searching for the one thing, right? What is the one tool of the future that people are going to use to acquire users? It's like, man, it's not about that at all. Mm. Um, and it also, what might work for one company won't work for others, right? Um, you know, we have a couple of OG like growth people, like VPs of growth at you know, the biggest direct-to-consumer companies you know who've invested in us. And they're the first to say, like, what worked for us isn't going to work for you. And there is no silver bullet. Yeah. No. For me, I mean, my approach to everything has been go talk to as many people as possible, collect as many stories and anecdotes on everything possible, and then go with my gut. But you don't... And I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious about then, 
you're not running a multi-bajillion dollar company. You are still a startup that has a pretty limited pool of resources. And so you and that's why I think what happens with startups in general is that they pick the thing. They say, okay, you know what? Maybe it's my gut. Maybe it's a little bit of what I read on that forum the other day. And maybe it's something someone once told me. I'm just going to go all in or mostly in on X. Mm-hmm. Did you pick a mostly in? What was your mostly in? Yeah, our mostly in was retention. Honestly, like we saw launch went well, right? So we had a bunch of people interested in the product. We had a bunch of people buy. Like we've had more people than I could have imagined buy the product very early. And we very quickly noticed that what those people do is take it, invite their friends over, drink it with all of their friends, and then suddenly all of their friends are into the product and then those friends buy. Mm -hmm. And that's a behavior that I was thinking about when I designed the brand, right? Our founder story isn't the challenge. The challenge is we're on the internet. How can I create a brand on the internet where people only interacting with our website or, you know, whatever press piece or my medium post or whatever, how do they inherently know what this product is, where it lives in their life, to bring it home, invite all of their friends over to gather together because it's ultimately about getting people together. It's not about the drink. And look at a really pretty bottle. (laughs) And all stare at a bottle for two hours. And just have a great time. And all of those people associate this amazing time with this product and all of them are suddenly converted customers, right? That was this kind of flywheel loop that I wanted to build into the product. And it was a big question mark of whether that would work. So the key is current customers, have them come back Mm -hmm. and then have them also bring, essentially, hopefully, maybe five more customers with them. Yeah. What, where does kind of loyalty then fit into your approach? When creating a loyalty program, creating subscription? I mean, this is a repeat purchase. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the data is amazing that we're seeing. Like we have the, we have a higher retention rate than most companies in the industry and people reorder every three weeks which is amazing Uh, and when we do interviews with our customers the biggest request is a subscription model which is great that it's like not something we have to force on people it's something that people want but we already knew that would work because we come from subscription alcohol right like there's two types of alcohol (laughs) there's the impulse buy which is i need a bottle of wine tonight shit I need to go to the bodega. I need to go to the grocery store. And there's a handful of things that lead to conversion in that world, right? Mostly packaging. And then you have the subscription alcohol buyer, which is very niche. It's wine clubs. <laughs> right. That's I was it. Say, it's the 12, the, the cases that arrive yes. every month. Yeah. And so that's a very specific world. And it's also a world that's quite archaic and, uh, you know, ripe for disruption. But when you look at what works in that world, um, and what the motivators are for people who subscribe to alcohol, um, it's pretty much three things. It's a deep affinity for the creators and wanting to have a relationship with them and their lifestyle, whether that's like in Woody's case when he was running wine clubs, everybody loved Woody and just wanted to be friends with him and wanted to hang out in wine country with him when they visited. That was a huge motivator. You can see the same thing with like Scribe Winery. Everybody wants to be friends with those like handsome, cool dudes, right? <laughs> and go to their ranch in Sonoma sure. and, and have a yeah. great time. And then you have dinner with them and they're all hanging out. Right. And yeah, you're and part then, of a club. Yeah. And then you've got the other two tenants, which is community and um, and programming. And those kind of go hand in hand, right? Like, look at Scribe. This They've done the best job of any millennial brand in the wine industry. People want to be a member of Scribe so that they can go on that ranch, go to these events, be exposed to new chefs and new food, but also be exposed to other people who share their values sure. and who appear to be cool so people. So what's your ranch going to be? Uh, well, we're about to launch an HQ in New York. 
Um, that's the starting point. And it's not just an office. It's not just right. an office. No, it's, it's, it's not a place you can go if you just want to. It's invite only, but um, it's a place where we'll host programming for our top customers and eventually our subscribers. But it's the same idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I can take a step back. The same loophole that allows us to go direct to consumer also allows us to open our own retail. So the reason you've never seen a maker's mark brick and mortar is because it's illegal, but we can open brick and mortars in major cities. There's tons of like legal crap that we have to go through to make it happen, but it's not actually a ton. Like we could open two locations in California today. What are the signals that you will look at while saying, okay, or maybe you're already getting the signals that here are the signals, I know it's happening and that'll enable you as, again, a business person to say, okay, this it's time because look, retail's retail's got to challenge us. It's not easy. Yeah, no. It's, I mean, it's time now. Like, okay. <laughs> it's today. It's time now. I can put money to going work after on that immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, it's it's not only a way to capture that impulse buyer, which is awesome because there are people who are like, I want house right now. I need it right now, and I'm frustrated that I can only buy it on the internet. Totally sure. valid. But then it's the opportunity for us to hit those other two tenants um, and really the third tenant, ourselves included, of providing more proximity to us as founders uh, and providing more proximity to a community of people that share similar values and access to programming. That is awesome. So here's the thing, though. Okay, so you're you're almost going to launch retail. You're almost subscription-y. You're already selling yourselves. At what point would you, if ever, say, okay, I don't want to be, you're essentially 100%, you're 100% direct-to-consumer. Is there a point that you'll say, okay, I'm 50% direct-to-consumer, I'm going to go wholesale, I'm going to go very wholesale? And is there a threshold that, again, you guys as co-founders kind of sit there and go, yes, but there's still this much control that we will retain over this company that we have given birth to? (laughs) Totally. Well, another thing that people don't realize is you can do your own wholesale. It's just harder. Right. Um, So we can today go do wholesale in California. Right. It's no problem. Again, it's state by state. Every state has different hoops that you have to go through. But we're able to do that for us. Like anyone who thinks that a brand can be only direct to consumer is has not spent five minutes reading about the industry. Right. Like only direct to consumer doesn't work. Uh, It's really about for us being where our customer is. It's not about 50 percent of our revenue coming from wholesale. It's actually more about where is our customer drinking and being out and doing business and we need to be in those places and it's more of a brand play than a revenue play because we have direct to consumer is just such a good business for us and we'll have our own retail and that might again that might change is as the so so then let's take take your house hat off for a minute she's not actually wearing a hat just, just no take hat. it t- there's no hat but take your metaphorical hat off for a minute what is with the dtc buzz because so many brands and I I have this conversation with so many people and I love the different answers I get. I'm like they're you're not DTC. For example, last you know, we've had brands on this podcast to say, okay, we're forty percent wholesale, but we'll never go more than forty percent. And that's why we're DTC. We have brands who are like at this point, honestly, seventy percent of their revenues coming from them selling to stores um, yeah. or selling to buyers. But they're like, Well, our DNA is DTC and DTC doesn't mean selling to consumers, it just means having a direct relationship with consumers. Here's my theory, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. My theory is is that it's hot to be DTC. It's pretty hot. And everyone just loves that term, and people you know, are likelier to pick up the phone when they hear it's a DTC brand, and maybe people will write about you more because going back to the press thing, 
what what's with it? Because it doesn't seem like a real thing. I think if DTC is the only thing that makes your product interesting, you are in big trouble. <laughs> right. But it seems to be the case. Yeah. No. And I think that that will see an adjustment. Right. Like, I think I've seen a couple of threads from investors lately being like, wow, all of these new directed consumer products that are coming out right now trying to raise like the majority of them, there's nothing interesting about them. And they're clinging to direct to consumer. And that's not enough. Mm. Right. It's not enough as a marketing strategy or just a strategy. No, I think what originally made direct to consumer interesting is it was a challenger brand. Right. Like, it was a brand that was going after an archaic industry that was in desperate need of change. And going direct to consumer allowed you to reach a customer that wanted your product but wasn't hearing about you because all of the middlemen were disrupting the message, right? That was the original value of direct to consumer is you being able to control your message, actually get to a customer that desperately wants what you're making, mm -hmm. and you don't have anyone in between you and the customer to fuck that up, right? And so we're lucky in that we are able, like, we're the first to do what we're doing, yeah. right? So we're able to kind of take advantage of that older kind of disruptor challenger brand narrative. Um, but there will be five copycats that come out, you know, after us in the next couple of years. And uh, it's almost I'll a be, given. <laughs> yeah, I'll be very interested to see what they do to stand out other than being direct to consumer. So it, it almost feels like DTC can be, in many cases, just a launch strategy. It's a way you launch, potentially, but you may change and shift and move as your customer or whoever the market tells you to. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is owning the message in the beginning and having that control, right? And I think that's a smart practice that corporate brands can use. It's it's a smart practice for anybody, right? If you want to be brand first, you can't be everywhere because suddenly your message is diluted and you can't trust a different retailer or a different vendor or even a different person to tell your message as well as you can. So you have to grow consciously. But direct-to-consumer isn't the only reason that happens. You can be direct-to-consumer and do a terrible job spreading your message. How right? much does it help with the press just to say, oh, did you see? Um, I'm not sure, to hmm. be honest. Like, Seems like a PR strategy often. I think it's a PR strategy for a lot of people. I think you run the risk of clinging too hard to easy messages. And as your business evolves, you've already told a story that's a little too simple. And you can't really go back and be like, actually, we're more complex than that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because they're like, well, I've we actually got talked. layers. <laughs> yeah. So I'm kind of a contrarian in my views to PR, where there's actually a downside to being everywhere. Whether it's distribution, whether it's press, whether it's because you have to continue to evolve and you have to continue to tell that story. And I would much rather be very careful with what stories are being told in the beginning versus saying whatever you need to say to get that coverage. Hmm. Right. But you guys were everywhere. We were everywhere. Was there was there any was there even a moment during that like entire sort of that you were launching? There was all this stuff going on. You were you were in this mode in last the summer. Where he said, "Ooh, okay. Let's let's make sure we're pulled back. Let's make sure we're careful. Let's make sure we don't we yeah. don't overdo it." Yes, yes. So, what comes next? Because now you're doing paid. You're not going. You're going to actually put some money behind this story that you've got. What do you worry about? What are sort of the challenges? And what are you excited about? Um, what I lose sleep over is someone taking our message and running with it in a different direction, right? Um, and that again is just like that's baked into everything that I do. It's like, is our story being told in the right way all the time? Um, and I eventually have to let go of some of that control as we grow. 
um, and trust partners and trust vendors and trust other people to tell that story for us. But um, I want to keep it close to me in the beginning. So I lose sleep about that a lot. Um, We're about to kick off another raise, which... I mean, literally, Sonoma County was burning last week and we almost lost our house. And I was like, I'm so stressed out about our future fundraise that this isn't even affecting my adrenaline. Like, (laughs) something to be said for perspective. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I'm so, like, you know, I've just been, it's actually, you know, we're in a lucky place where we're performing really well and um, there's a lot of interest. And so, I doubt it'll be as hard for us to raise as it would be for a lot of other people in the world. But at the same time, I've been through it and it's horrible. And so I'm not looking forward to it. Um, and so, you know, that that brings me a lot of Has the investing landscape changed? Well, I don't know because I've only done it once, right? Um, but just from what you hear, because again, going back to like DTC's buzzy, blah, blah, blah. I mean... I think I genuinely think that investors were looking, you know, are looking more carefully. They're being smarter, which they should have been in the first place. But, you know, they're, they're not there's more competition than ever in just everything digitally native. Every mm-hmm. every there's a new brand every other minute. My experience is that it's the Wild West. I mean, I have pitched people in Silicon Valley. I've pitched them in New York. I've pitched every kind of investor software, CPG, food and beverage, spirits, everybody. And they all kind of hate each other. Um, so, like, there's traditional, more traditional CPG folks who are very mad at Silicon Valley and SoftBank in particular for inflating valuations and making right. it difficult for them to compete. And they're like, this is not realistic. Like, the bubble's going to burst. But at the same time, traditional CPG often cling to really old methodologies around distribution and therefore valuations. So the answer is somewhere in the middle, I've Mm -hmm. found. And finding those investors um, took some time that really kind of embraced this like gray area in between where it's like actually both are right. Right. Like there are going to be plenty of CPG companies that can claim DTC and pretend that they can raise like a software company and that's not what they should be doing because their margins are never going to exceed 50%. It's just a completely different business. Right. But then you have, you know, software valuations on certain CPG companies that are probably inflated. And um, obviously SoftBank is having their moment of, you know, their (laughs) reckoning. And so the reality is somewhere in the middle and that, again, it's just case by case by case. Mm. And looking at if you're an investor and applying a certain set of rules to a challenger brand in a different industry, it doesn't work. Mm. And so you really have to do your homework and you have to investigate, okay, what is the legacy industry like? What is this company doing to solve it? What are typical acquisition multiples? Like, what are margins? And all these things factor into what it should really be. Is it, and I guess... The other obvious side effect of a lot of a lot of this action and kind of investing was inflated valuations, of course, um, just ridiculous sort of numbers. But also at the same time, you know, I heard so much from founders that they were having unrealistic pressure put on them when it came to growth. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, sort of customer acquisition costs were rising, but it was like, no, growth at all costs. And I heard that a lot. And even for people who'd started companies saying, we know, and I think when you start a company, you have a pretty good sense of at month six what it's going to look like, mm-hmm. year one, and you want to go at a certain pace to manage inventory, to manage costs, to manage so many things. And all those things were going right out the window because Mr. VC was like, hey, I need I need to see some something different here. Mm-hmm. Did that scare you or does that scare you just as a founder? And how will you cope with that? Yeah, I think there are two camps there too, right? There is the growth at all cost 
uh, venture capitalist. And then there's the venture capitalist that understands brand and understands the relationship between preserving brand and how that may affect your growth in the short term. Um, and luckily there are, I found that the best portfolios with the best direct-to-consumer companies understand that brand is a huge part of it. And our kind of investing philosophy is very much like we never want to grow in the soft bank way. Like we never want to just throw a ton of money at ourselves because we're the first brand in a space and we can just like do million dollar experiments and see what works, right? Like it actually is very important to preserve the brand and to cling to what works for the brand, even if that means like a much more conscious growth trajectory, sure. right? Like and if that's we, okay. Right. Like, yes, we could go and work with a distributor that puts us in 4,000 accounts, but we actually don't want to do that because then we're a commodity and we just lost all of our brand. And you're just not the company you, you're building. Exactly. So there are, there are definitely investors that sit on either side of that camp. And I think a lot of par there are a lot of parallels between investing and dating, right? You <laughs> like I'm they don't realize it, but I'm sizing them up as much as they're sizing me up. Right. And yes, that makes for a very long and arduous process. But yeah. But at the same time, if you really believe in what you're doing, then you believe that you can choose your investors, too. Like, yes, they choose you, but you choose them. And for me, anyone who shows any red flags around like needing like, oh, why are you not doing a million dollars a month right now? And it's like, because we launched two months ago, right? Like anyone who's overly like who. Unrealistic. Yeah. <laughs> and anyone who puts way too much weight on revenue versus, you know, the less hard numbers, then it's not a fit, right? There's a sweet spot in the middle. Amazing. This has been the Modern Love Podcast in like a really <laughs> weird way. Helena, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And that's all for today's episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Pierre Bienname, who also made our amazing theme song. Thank you, Pierre. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Head to your iTunes store, search for a show, and leave us a review and a rating. It helps new listeners find us. Thanks again for listening. 